welcome to the present crisis. I'm Jay Pepper Briars. If you're listening to this, you found me on the only place I share my work, which is at jpepper.substack.com. Today, we're going to talk about Conservatism 101, sort of a crash course essay on its foundations, 10 fundamental principles, and why I think it's necessary even for progressives. So to begin with, let me say that American society, and human civilization for that matter, rest on a constantly shifting balance between those who wish to preserve the past and those who seek to build the future, between those who value order and those who desire to unleash freedom, and between those who accept the world as it is and those who wish to shape it into what it could someday become. There's a little bit of everyone in each of those camps, but when opinions on all major issues are considered, people mostly lean towards one side or the other, the left or right side of the political spectrum. It's a completely natural and surprisingly necessary balance when you dig into the reasons for each And the healthy tension between those two sides in America has fostered an unprecedented level of knowledge, strength, and prosperity. But lately, the left and right have stopped talking. Each side believes itself to be morally superior, and consequentially, that the other side is morally inferior and not worth learning from, not worth negotiating with, and not even worth listening to. We're a house divided, or close enough to it to be worried. But for those who still see value in our union, and who still want to live together, it's critically important to understand not just what we think, but how we think, and most importantly, why. What follows is my best effort to explain the how and why from my own perspective, a traditional conservative one that would have been familiar to Ronald Reagan or William F. Buckley Jr., in hopes that it'll be of some value to both sides. So why are there even conservatives and progressives? The divisions we're seeing now are really nothing new. In fact, many believe the roots of how we understand modern conservatism and modern progressivism and the arguments between the two began way back in the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers were keen on discussing human nature, believing if we could understand human nature, we could then understand how to better govern ourselves. One popular idea was John Locke's theory of the blank slate, or if he were alive today, perhaps the blank emoji. In this state, all men are born knowing equally nothing. Thus, all men are created equal. And the type of person we become is entirely caused by our own unique experiences. And if a man were left alone in this pristine state of nature, and not influenced by the corrupting aspects of the world, we'd all essentially develop into good people. We'd all be the angel emoji. We'd only need a light social contract to preserve our natural rights, our natural liberties. Thomas Hobbes believed very differently. He thought we're all created with great flaws, and in a state of nature, our irrational self-interest would cause us all to become awful people. 
were all the devil emoji in his eyes. Read the Lord of the Flies for a great imagining of this theory. So Hobbes believed we needed a heavy contract, surrendering our natural rights to a strong ruler in exchange for him keeping us from killing one another, in exchange for keeping order. Two polar opposite and competing ideas, one naive and the other dreary. Thinkers kicked them around for a century or so until the revolution occurred that caused them to bring together the best aspects of each and begin the modern conservative movement. The American Revolution, you may be thinking? No. That was less of a war of true revolution than a war of preservation, preserving what liberty the colonists already had. That's how they viewed it. The revolution that kindled modern conservative thought was the French Revolution. Those revolutionaries tossed out everything, from the ruling class to the church and even the calendar. Every aspect of society was deemed institutionally repressive. Now, does that sound familiar? Liberty, equality, fraternity was the slogan. And if you didn't get with the program, terror. English and American thinkers looked on in horror at how much bad was being introduced to French society with such little good in return, and they began to write about it. Their basic argument was this. Sure, the Enlightenment idea of liberty is important. These natural rights are real and must be protected. Locke is right. But so is order. Hobbes is right. An orderly society is damn hard to create. And when order is lost, liberty is lost with it. Only chaos remains, as they saw on the streets of Paris. Rich and poor alike were being robbed and murdered, and in the end, a despot came to power to establish order and quash all freedom. Just as Hobbes theorized. That was Napoleon. Here's the key. The American and English thinkers realized. A moderated Hobbesian order creates the condition for a moderated Lockean liberty. One comes before the other. A healthy society must have each, and they must remain in a delicate and constantly adjusting balance. Liberty on one side, order on the other. Too much of one and you get chaos. Look at San Francisco. Or tyranny, look at Shanghai. Over the next 200 years, the conservative movement began to notice certain ways of thinking certain perspectives that tended to help society maintain the balance between liberty and order, maintaining a shared sense of boundaries that people could freely operate within. And while conservatism doesn't have any list of doctrines or any sort of catechism or profession of beliefs, the writer and philosopher Russell Kirk did a fine job of combining these various perspectives into ten general principles. The first principle is that conservatives recognize that there is an enduring moral order. We are not blank slates or blank emojis, and we've known this for a very long time. In chapter 2 of the book of Romans, St. Paul writes this about the Gentiles, who are never taught the laws of God. Quote, they show the demands of the law are written in their hearts. All cultures possess a common understanding of morality. We may disagree on the high-definition details up close, but from far away we all see the same fuzzy image of what's right and what's wrong. 
The ancients believed this was innate, and now modern developmental psychologists agree. Studies are showing that nature provides us with a first draft of not only personality, but of morality as well. As with all first drafts, it's not final, and one that's later revised by experience, for good and bad. I'll explain a little about that in a moment. But conservatives recognize this enduring moral order, however uncomfortable it may make us. Nations, and certainly individuals, ignore it at their own peril. The second principle is tradition. Conservatives understand things like customs, convention, and continuity help bind us to one another, thereby holding the community and the larger society together. Tradition gives us a connection to the past and a stake in the future. Edmund Burke put it well when he wrote that, quote, Society is a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are dead and those who are to be born. We have simple traditions like a wedding ring. We have complicated traditions, like weddings or marriage itself. We may not understand them all. Some are deeply meaningful in themselves. Some simply enable other meaningful things. But if we start tossing them aside like they're relics of an uninformed or superstitious past, we may find ourselves floating aimlessly through life, pushed and pulled by currents of reckless and unpredictable winds. Because even when we demolish traditions, our innate need for order causes us to reestablish them in other forms, which are often inferior and more harmful than those that have been tested by time. The French Revolution, again, brought so many examples of this. They did away with religion. So the state created a secular religion to take its place, and it was even more corrupt and harmful than the first. Traditions keep us moored to something larger and much sturdier than just ourselves. The next principle is prescription, and that's not like a pharmacist's prescription. We haven't found the Get Smarter pill yet, but I'm certainly looking for it. This is prescription in the legal sense, which is our observation that it is often wise to keep certain things that have been tested by time, or if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Generations upon generations have found that certain institutions or specific practices tend to produce the best results, or not. Collectivism doesn't work. Never has, never will. Look at Cuba, look at Venezuela, look at the former Soviet Union. Further time and energy spent investing in that experiment should be discouraged, to say the least. On the other hand, a man and a woman getting married, staying married, and having children generally leads to the best life outcomes, from personal wealth to life expectancy. That lifestyle should be encouraged. That's prescription at work. Now, here's a thought experiment to demonstrate the need for the next principle, prudence. So, a bat and ball cost $1.10 total. A bat cost a dollar more than the ball. So how much does the ball cost? Now, if you're thinking 10 cents, like most people and like me, then like most people, you're wrong. The correct answer to this problem is the ball cost 5 cents and the bat cost a dollar more, a dollar and 5 cents for a grand total of a dollar and 10 cents. So why do so many people answer that incorrectly? Because we have two track minds, one for thinking quickly and one for thinking things through. Slowly. The problem is we're often stuck on one track, and it's the quick one. 
That is why conservatives believe in the principle of prudence. Move slowly because you don't know what's going to happen. Our problems are large and complex. You fix something here and it causes something to break over there. And we should distrust any politician who seems too confident. Prudence, practically speaking, is putting doubt into practice. And far from pointless naysaying, doubting the best laid plans of mice and men could save money, and more importantly, lives. Next, conservatives take note of variety. Conservatism and variety may seem like they don't go together, but they do. There's absolutely nothing uniform or stagnant about the free market. There's plenty of variety there. But it's not only the marketplace for goods and services. We seek variety in the marketplace of ideas, of institutions, of traditions. Contrast that to the opposite ways of thinking. Isn't it interesting how in a collectivist system, everything seems to be uniform? The same ideas, even the same fashion. Everything's the same. And even when they express supposed radical ideas or alternative behaviors or even bizarre hairstyles, there's an ironic sense of conformity to it all. And that's the key. Everything ends up being the same because a collectivist seeks equality in life's outcome, not accepting true variety in life itself. There's a rational and even moral reason they feel this way, which I'll explain later. Kirk's sixth principle of conservatism is imperfectibility. I write with a pencil for a reason. I make mistakes, often, and use the eraser nearly as much as the lead. Conservatism knows this, too. The left's central planner, despite all his resources and all his best intentions, will fail to produce the perfect plan. And even if he could, people couldn't follow the plan perfectly. The results of such efforts on the scale of large governments usually end in disaster. The Soviet Union promised a worker's paradise. It delivered the gulags instead, a real hell on earth. Conservatives say the best we can hope for in the world is a relatively free and orderly society. But some suffering is inevitable. Seventh, conservatives have learned that freedom and property are closely linked. The stronger a nation's property laws, both real property and intellectual property, the freer and more prosperous are its people. Remember the case of Suzette Kilo, who owned a little house near the coast of Connecticut? The town of New London used the Constitution's eminent domain clause to force her to sell it. Now, this clause was meant to allow governments the ability to force private property owners to sell their lands at a fair value so they could be used for public infrastructure like roads or school buildings. They forced Kilo to sell her property to a private company so they could develop a shopping center. Our Supreme Court ruled several years ago that that was permissible. It is not, and it never will be in a free country. By the way, you know what they did with that land after they forced Kilo to sell it? They didn't do anything with it. Their big plan for economic development never went anywhere. Again, the folly of the central planner. Kilo's beloved home became a vacant lot, as vacant as the morality the Supreme Court's opinion was based upon. Eighth, conservatives believe in the strength of voluntary community interaction, a group with shared interests coming together to discuss and hopefully solve problems. 
This best expresses itself in local government. Progressivism usually seeks centralized authority at the highest levels. Libertarians usually seek not much authority at all, but conservatives believe in decentralized local authority. Those who are closest to the issues are usually positioned to make the best decision. That isn't always the case, of course. We have a national military because that's the best organization for its mission. But we also have local police forces. And, for instance, I have no idea why we have a federal Department of Education. Conservatism's ninth principle is a belief in prudent restraints. We have one of the best restraints known to men, the Constitution of the United States of America. In other nations, their governmental documents lay out what the governments can do and shall do. It's all about the government can do this and the government can do that. Not us. Our governing document is full of statements like, Congress shall not. And we famously separate our powers, legislative, judicial, and executive. In most nations, the legislative and executive functions are combined into a parliament which would be something like if we only had a House of Representatives. The Speaker of the House would be the Prime Minister, and other members of the majority party in the House would be appointed to run the various executive departments, defense, state, interior, etc. That allows a government to act swiftly once in power. Us, not so much. Our framers didn't want our government to act swiftly. They wanted it to act prudently. So they restrained our government every way they could. Gridlock wouldn't have been a bad word to their ears, and it shouldn't be to ours. Kirk's 10th principle is how conservatives recognize that permanence and change must be reconciled. People often say conservatives are resistant to change. Not so. We're just resistant to quick or reckless change. We can add more liberty to the society, but it must be counterbalanced with the appropriate amount of order, even if it's not a law, but a maturing of the society to handle the new freedom. Slowly, but surely. Move too fast and you're likely to produce a counterreaction that destabilizes what's good in society and then destroys that which you seek to improve. Because conservatives recognize the imperfectibility of man, We accept that we also don't know everything yet. There are many things yet to be discovered, and not only in the areas of science and technology, but in our institutions, our government processes, and even in our hearts and minds. When these changes are discovered, they must be balanced against what is already known and accepted. So here's the objective of it all. Ordered liberty. Well-ordered liberty. That's the key. That's the lesson from the French Revolution and every real revolution before or since. And that's why conservatives think the way we do, to maintain the balance between order and liberty. Or seen through the metaphor of the ancient labyrinth, the ability to move liberty within an established boundary, order. What are those boundaries? That's for each society and each generation to establish, and then adjust for themselves. And we do it through the application of those 10 principles. But understanding all that doesn't get to the core of the problem we're currently facing, the deep distrust each side has for one another, how we believe that their ideas are not only wrong, but that their motives are even worse. 
That's simply not a sustainable attitude if we're going to live with one another. We can disagree, but we really need to get a grip on the idea that those who disagree with us are terrible people who need to be canceled. Perhaps the pathway out of this problem rests on understanding that there's an enduring moral order. Because I firmly believe that there are people of good faith on the left and the right who are making their decisions based on a common moral framework. Not all of them, but most of them. It's just that we all pay attention to certain aspects of morality in different degrees and then make our decisions based upon what we believe are the most important. A few years ago, Professor Jonathan Haidt ran a study covering thousands of subjects across several disciplines and cultures looking for morals that we all share in common, primed from birth, and found that we did indeed have them. And he classified them into five foundations of morality. The first is harm care. This is what causes us to care for others, to have compassion, to feel strongly about those who cause harm. The second common morality is something he calls fairness reciprocity. This is justice, or or basically the golden rule. In-group loyalty is the third. This is what causes us to bond first with family, to create communities, and then nation. Think of it as our tribal instinct to gather and protect, even though that phrase can be understood as something undesirable. The fourth is authority and respect. This is that bit of order I was speaking about earlier. The last is purity and sanctity. This isn't just about sex. It's about seeking virtue and suppressing vice, trying to make the best of yourself, and keeping something clean, maybe your mind, your heart, your body, your environment, whatever. For social conservatives, this may be remaining chaste before marriage. For environmental liberals, this may mean abolishing coal-fired energy plants. Hyde's research found that liberals score high in those first two. They score really high. They're up around, in a scale of one to five, they're up around four for those first two, harm, care, and fairness, reciprocity. But somewhat low on the other three. Authority, respect, in-group loyalty, purity, sanctity, they kind of drop down to somewhere between one and two. Then Hyde found that conservatives tend to care about all of those things equally. No factor was too high or too low. They were all grouped somewhere in the middle, between somewhere around three, as ranking them what are most important to them. What interests me is that gap, that noticeable gap between how much liberals seem to care about harm, care, and fairness, justice, and then how little about authority, respect, in-group loyalty, and purity, sanctity. There's a big gap there. That gap could explain why order will naturally decay without effort. But it certainly explains the role conservatives play in society. Because they care about all those things kind of equally, they take up the slack in that gap, making sure we have order, making sure our communities are held together, making sure we seek virtue. Meanwhile, we have the liberals to focus heavily on harm, care, and fairness, and reciprocity. Now, We're all over the map on some of these things. This is all generally speaking. But however you look at that graph, and I encourage you to go to YouTube, type in Jonathan Haidt's name. Jonathan is easy enough to spell. His last name is H-A-I-D-T. You can find his talks on the foundation of morality. It's great. But however you look at the graph that he talks about, it's clear to me that we need both sides. 
We need Americans focused on treating people better. We need Americans focused on making sure people are treated fairly. We need Americans focused on taking care of their families. We need Americans focused on ensuring we have an orderly society to live in. And we need Americans focused on keeping us healthy, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Folks like Professor Height would say that mankind evolved that way to ensure that all of the tribe's needs were met. I'd largely agree, but only add that I believe it's all part of God's plan. He knew before the world was created that there'd be a guy named Carl who would have a strong instinct to protect, and he would become a police officer in New York City, or that there'd be a girl named Joanna who would feel the need to instruct our little ones and would become a teacher in Nashville, and he knew that you would care about the things you care about, and you would be doing what you're doing. Because we're a team, we need order. We need liberty. We need each other. And if we can treat each other with dignity and courtesy, keep talking, and keep our minds open, we might, just might, keep that balance. Thank you for listening. <laughs>